Good morning, everyone. We meet our Bibles in Romans chapter 11, and I invite you to make your way there. Romans chapter 11. We'll be looking at a verse here in just a moment as we spend our time now transitioning to focusing on listening to the Word of God, studying together. So good to be with you today. Thank you for all who are visiting with us. We have many who are here, and it's a great day. In fact, just over what has taken place this morning, we can say it's been good to be here this day. We've sung songs of praise. We have been reminded of powerful truths. And one worth asking and considering based on what's already been said today. I hope it's in your heart because of how powerfully it was stated. We have hope in Jesus. We have, we have hope of eternal life and salvation in Him. We have hope of a blessed assurance of being with Him forever in eternity. Do you have that hope? Are you, are you assured that today, if it was the day that we meet Jesus face to face, that we would go on with Him in glory? Because if not, we would love to talk with you today. Please do not leave without hearing about that hope and that promise that is for everyone, which means it is for you. Thank you so much, our brothers, who have helped us to sing and to think and reflect on these powerful words. A lot of this congregation has spent time with that really challenging book of the Old Testament today. Our children study the book of Jonah throughout the building, and Brother Jansen gave a powerful lesson today, just giving us the consideration and the challenge. I'll repeat this challenge for us. It's good to think about. What if we prayed every day thankful for God's mercy and God's grace? What if every day we, we just had a portion of our time in prayer to thanksgiving to God for the blood of Jesus and the hope we have for Him? And what if we pray thanksgiving, not just for the mercy we have received, but the mercy that he has extended to the whole world and asking God to help me see my neighbor as he sees them and as he sees me. What a wonderful lesson, brother. Thank you so much. And a great challenge for us to think about. You asked about the comment about Jonah being eaten by the fish. He was eaten by fish. And then the church said, amen. And we're going forward. <laughs> We've been looking at this concept of balance for about a month, and I'd like today to conclude it, to conclude just some thoughts on this. There's a lot more we could talk about relating to the concept of balance and things relating to this motif, but I want us to just wrap it all up with one final, final consideration to it. With the idea of balance, if you get that picture on the screen of a scale, what makes one end go up and another goes down just depends on where the weight is placed, and that's just a great analogy of life. So often where we place the weight of importance or priority in our thinking and believing, if we're not careful and we don't distribute that evenly, we find ourselves uneven in the way that we believe and in the way that we behave. And so we've looked at various concepts that demand a balanced perspective. Concepts like faith. Faith is what we know, but it's also what we do. It's both demonstrated together in the biblical definition of faith. We've looked at law and love, and last week we talked about just a balanced understanding of a, of a large congregation. There are some things relating to balance, and if you were to put them together and to consider the, a balanced approach, the, the things seem so opposite, so contrary to one another. Night and day, or darkness and light, and good and evil, cats and dogs, uh, the Aggies and the Longhorns. Uh, the Cowboys, and any other good football team that exists in the NFL right now. Some things seem immense, uh, they seem immensely opposite. And then we get to Romans 11 and verse 22, where Paul says, Behold then the kindness, or your verse you may say, the goodness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in His kindness, 
Otherwise, you will also be cut off. The goodness of God and the severity of God. The kindness and grace and love of our God which propels us to faithful service to Him. And the serious, the judgment, the wrath of God, which through fear motivates us so greatly to serve Him and to serve Him well. They both exist in the heart of our God. And I think one of the clearest ways of seeing it expressed, what I want us to consider today, is going to the end and coming backwards. Because if we were to look at what God has painted for us and describe what is to come through Scripture, there are two destinations He has expressed in eternity, heaven and hell. And I want us to balance that today. I want us to consider the reality of both places, why they exist, and why both heaven and hell serve an important purpose for God's people today. One we really like to talk about, and we sing about it all the time. The other, we just don't like it at all. In fact, we try to remove it completely from our language. It's only in the worst of circumstances that we might bring it in to try and talk about how bad things are. It's not new. In 2011, there was a book called Love Wins, written by Rob Bell, and this is what he says in the book. He says, at the center of the Christian tradition since the first church have been a number who insist that history is not tragic. Hell is not forever, and love in the end wins, and all will be reconciled to God. In other words, what he's saying is, there's no such thing as hell. At the end of God's story is that God's love wins over all, and all will be saved. And that's not new. There have been magazines like Times which talked about, what if there is no hell? John Lennon wrote that famous song, Imagine. Imagine there is no heaven. Imagine there is no hell. Robert Ingersoll, uh, Ingersoll once said, I have no respect for any human being who believes in hell. I dislike the doctrine. I hate it. I despise it. I defy this doctrine. I don't think he likes the concept of hell. <clears throat> Very well from that quote. But we can appreciate where he's coming from. There's a belief called universalism, which says everyone is saved because we have a hard time understanding and wrestling with the reality of a place described in the Bible as hell. Let's, let's walk a little bit. You got our notes. Let's just get some, some things we know straight from Scripture about what the Bible teaches about this as we wrestle together with, with the reality of such a place. First of all, is hell a real place? Can we at least say or know for certain that hell is a real place? Jesus spoke of it as, this, as if it is a real place. Matthew 10, verse 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The reality of a body, the reality of a soul, the reality of a place called hell. In Matthew chapter 5, he says in verse 28, that if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And he makes the same analogy about your right hand, that it would be better to cast off your right hand than for your whole body to go to this place called hell. In Matthew 13, in verse 41, at the end of the parable of the tares, he says, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, you kind of just get how Jesus has talked about this throughout his teaching. And then in Matthew chapter 25, in verse 41, Jesus says in the midst of that parable about those who do not care for the least of these, he says, I will, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, and to the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Throughout his teaching, he makes it very clear there is such a place as hell. 
Well, what is it? What is hell? Our Greek word Gehenna is where we find our word for hell. What's interesting is that word comes from a location. Right outside of Jerusalem, to the south of the city, was this valley of Hinnon. Some despicable things took place in that valley, such as the sacrificing of children. In the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 3, as history would progress, it became a dump. Trash was burned there. The bodies of the dead were cast there, and so it was just categorized, well-known as a place of just despicable, vile, evil trash. And that is a language that is used to describe a place we know as hell. Well, what do we know about it? If it exists, and that's the picture that we have in mind where God used, why God used that word, why would he use that word to describe it because of what it characterizes, then what do we know about it? Well, we know that it's a place of great pain. Matthew 25 verse 30 says that they are to cast out the worthless slave in the outer darkness and that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's described as burning. It's described as fire. It's described as anguish. It's described as a place where those who are there are in a great anguish. In Mark chapter 9 verse 47, Jesus says, if your, if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is a pain and a suffering that will last as Jesus is pointing to for an eternity. We also know it's a place of punishment. We got that from Matthew chapter 25, that God's plan and purpose and design for hell is that it is a place intended for the devil and his angels, for the one who has worked evil from the very beginning, and that ought to speak enough for the definition of what this place is. If God is going to choose a place to punish someone who is powerful and has been at work from the very beginning, you know it's going to be a severe place. And so we also find language like John 15 and verse 6 where Jesus would use the language of punishment in terms of the relationship of he and his people. When he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into fire and they are burned. The people aren't going to abide in Jesus. We're not going to follow and submit to the master. That is what they are facing. Same thing in Philippians chapter 9. Paul talks about those he describes as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says they're in this destruction whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And so there is obviously explicitly uh, made clear throughout the scripture that those who choose a path away from God and rebellion of God, the fate that they are facing is this location, a place of pain and a place of punishment. We also know it's a place of remorse. There's a statement that Paul would make in Romans 2 when he says in verse 8 that, that those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. He says there will be, notice, tribulation and distress for every soul who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Great anguish. There's pain, there's suffering, there's remorse. And really, the clearest way that the Bible defines what hell truly is. We're not to take fire literal. We're not to take the gnashing of teeth literal. It's just God's way of trying to express to us the anguish of what will exist in such a location. But truly, hell defined is the place where God is not. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And we don't know that today. 
fully understand that there are some who say the anguish I have been through, the pain I have experienced, the ugliness of, of, of the abuse of those in my life, I've been living hell for a long time. Well, you've been going through a lot of evil, but no one truly knows what hell is like because we don't know an existence without God. In fact, there is no one who has lived on this earth who knows an existence without God. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, he causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is very good even to wicked people. And so no one really knows what a place and an existence where God is not there is truly like. Well, who will go to hell? Obviously, Satan and his angels is designated from Matthew chapter 25. But then we also have passages like Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. And so those who choose to follow the way of the world, to follow their own impulse, rather than submitting their way to God, that is the end of the destination of their choices. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says that those who are unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, do not be deceived that neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Is he talking about someone who sins? Well, no, because it's possible, as John says in 1 John 1, even righteous people stumble and sin. If we say we have no sin, we lie. He's talking about those who continue to sin, who persist in sin, who make a lifestyle and a habit of sin, who live their life as if there is no God at all and I want to do what I want to do. God says there's a consequence to the choices we make. In fact, there's a consequence beyond today. There are choices we make today that will affect us eternally. Even in 2 Thessalonians 1, he talks about the coming of Jesus and how Jesus and his coming is to bring relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution, notice, to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do you know God? How does one come to know God today? With the word of God. He's revealed himself in the world, and so there's evidence all around us that there's a creator, but there is not a place today where the word of God has not gone forth. We are talking about those who choose and said not to know God, who choose not to listen, not to obey, not to submit, not to follow. I'm rejecting any knowledge of God in my life, and thus they will receive the very thing that they are pursuing. I want to act as if God does not exist, and so I will be given that. I sent to a place where God is not. Even in Revelation chapter 20, the ones who, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they are thrown to the lake of fire. How does one get their name in the book of life? Jesus, the blood of the Lamb. The main question, I think a lot of us wrestle with this, seems a bit severe. Eternity? Forever? How could a loving God allow someone to go into a place like this? First of all, we need to remember that our God is just. Jansen made that point very clear today. He is very merciful. Our God is very merciful. And we'll look at that here in a moment. But he's also just. At the foundation of his throne is justice. And justice demands a response to sin. When crimes have been committed, there has to be a response in order for our God to be just. He can't, he can't sweep it under the rug. He can't ignore it. He can't make empty promises. God has to be just, and penalties come with a, with a cost, with a price. But we also know on the other side of this, and Jansen read this verse for us this morning, that God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. It's not like God is pleased with anyone who chooses to walk away from him saying, that's it. I've been waiting for this day for a long time. 
time. Ezekiel 18 makes it clear that he finds no delight in the death even of the wicked. God wants all to be saved, and we know God wants all to be saved because the death of Jesus was for the whole world. It wasn't just for the Jews. It wasn't just for those who had their life together. His sacrifice and his blood was for the whole world because he wants the whole world to be saved. Here's the reality. God doesn't send anyone to hell. Those who go to hell choose that path themselves. Jeremiah 2 and verse 17. Have you not done this to yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? We have been given time. We have been given life. We have been given Jesus. We have been given the word. We have been given people. We have been given opportunities. We have been given patience after patience after patience. And to reject all of it is not God sending anyone anywhere. It is me choosing a path, the end of a path of a way apart from God. This should feel heavy. One author said, the fear of hell is the only thing most likely to get worldly people thinking about the kingdom of God. No rational human being can be convinced that he is in imminent danger of everlasting torment and do nothing about it. We do a great disservice, my brethren, when we focus so heavy on heaven to neglect the reality of hell. That being said, we do need to talk about heaven. That's where things get great. That's where our mind goes and our heart goes. That's why we have so many songs about it. Because as awful as hell is, as absolutely unbelievably despicable of a place hell seems to be, heaven is beyond words. Just as real as, as hell is, heaven is a real place. In fact, God throughout Scripture is known as a God of heaven. It is a place. 1 Kings 8 and verse 30, listen to the plea of your servant, of your people Israel, when they pray towards your place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. God is known as living in heaven. In fact, you remember the model prayer Jesus opens by saying, our Father in heaven. God, that's where God lives. It's his home. In Colossians 1 and verse 20, Paul says that through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, just as real as earth is, heaven is real. It is a real place. But one thing we have to be careful with is that heaven isn't like earth. And that's what we tend to do because all we know is earth. And so we think, I know heaven is going to be the best of the things that I know, that I experience. Right? It's like the beaches at Florida with the Rocky Mountains and the weather in Colorado, it's, it's the best of it all. And sometimes we push it way too far. It's like it's Amazon shopping, but your credit card never maxes out, and then when it comes to your door. It is golfing, but your ball never goes in the sand pits. There are no sand pits. Every hit is a hole-in-one for, for all eternity. And we just kind of take things we like. The Rangers will always win in heaven. We just kind of take these things, and we run with it all. Now, here's one thing we have to appreciate. There are some things we cannot understand. And we have to be okay with that. There are some realities about God and who he is and his existence that even if he were to express it as it truly is, we couldn't comprehend it. Which is why when God speaks about heaven, he uses things that we know. For instance, he describes heaven as a city in Hebrews 11 and verse 10. He describes it as a country, a heavenly, better country in Hebrews 11 and verse 16. He describes heaven as this kingdom 
right? And the people then were familiar with kingdoms and empires. And then he describes it as a new heaven and a new earth because that's all that we know. Does that mean that heaven is an actual city with streets and turn signals? Does that mean that heaven is an actual country with hills and mountains? Does it mean that heaven is just like this earth? No, no. It just means that heaven is beyond our understanding. But the good things that we understand about this creation, realizing the one who made it, is just a foretaste of something amazing to come. That's why Paul would say in Colossians 3, he doesn't say, look around here and take it in and get ready for heaven. Colossians 3, it says, keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things here below. Because heaven's not like earth. That's the whole point of Revelation 21 and 22. All the things that plague us here, sadness and sickness and death and separation, won't exist, won't even be a thought in this beautiful place of heaven. Heaven's citizens are those redeemed by the Lamb. In your Bibles, let's go to Revelation chapter 7, please. In Revelation chapter 7, John the Apostle is shown a great crowd in Revelation chapter 7. It's a multitude of people. Revelation chapter 7 and the verse 9 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands. He sees this great multitude, and his question is, Who, who are they? Where'd they come from? The answer is given to him in verse 14. John says to this, this elder in verse 13, my Lord, you know, in other words, you know who they are. This is the response. He said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they served him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb is in the center of the throne. He will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. I've heard it said this year, it was beautifully stated, those in heaven the only ones in heaven are the ones who don't deserve to be there. That's well stated. The only ones who are going to be in heaven are those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Those who have tasted the amazing grace of God. That idea of washed in the Lamb comes right out of the prophets, which talks about forgiveness. The sins colored as crimson, washed white as snow the forgiveness and the mercy of God. Now here's the thought. You are sitting this morning among heaven's citizens right now. Citizenship is not granted through some sort of an application or arrival process. That once you cross the gates, you have now become a citizen of heaven. Paul says that we, our citizenship is in heaven. We're just visiting Texas, as great as it is. We're just passing through Dallas. We're strangers 
in Garland. Because we belong somewhere else. The homeland, the true country is there. We are citizens of heaven. But here's the thing. The real beauty of heaven and the real purpose of heaven, just as the opposites, get your balance, of hell, heaven is about God. It, it's not about the gold. It's not about the angels. It's not about all the things one may or may not do because the reality is we're not told any of those things about heaven. We're not told what we're going to do. We're not told about the reality of where we're going to live in that arrangement. We're not told about, about what that's going to look like. I've had a lot of questions from Emma, like, are we going to need naps in heaven? What is the food going to taste like? Can I live with you kind of thing in heaven? Well, I don't know. But here's what I do know. In Revelation chapter 4, when John is shown heaven for the first time, this is what he saw. After these things, Revelation 4 and verse 1, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Here we go. His first glimpse inside the door. Verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne was sitting in heaven and one sitting on the throne. What does he see? God. He's God. Like, what was it like? Like, what was the ambiance? What was the sky? He saw God. That's what he saw. And when you get to the end and we find all those positive things said about heaven in Revelation 21 and 22, when we try to grab onto those details, the main emphasis in Revelation 21 and 22, it's not about the jewels and the gold and the beauty and the glimmer. It's about God. God is in their midst. Revelation 21 and verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And that's where he just continues to repeat in beautiful language. There's no temple. There's no lines of separation. God is their temple. There's no sun far in a distance to give you your light? No, God is with you and he is the light. He is your light. There's no separation of having to hide you in the cleft of the rock. No, they in Revelation 22 and verse 4 will see him face to face. Heaven is all about God. Now, can you see a balance starting to form between heaven and hell? Hell serves an important purpose for us. Because hell, in one sense, reminds us of God's justice. And that's one thing we focus on. Within all of us, every single person, not just believers, but every person that will exist is a desire for justice. And so for those who inside of us, we know they've gotten away with their crimes, they've committed great evil, and nothing has been done about it. There is a sense of peace. There is a sense of comfort and understanding one day Every person will stand before the throne of God and they will have to give an account for what they have done, whether good or bad. There is comfort in realizing God will bring justice. But the other side of this is that hell reminds us of sin's seriousness. And that's why perhaps we need a little more hell in our study and conversations because it keeps us from this lie. It's not so bad. It's not so bad. Others have done worse. There's a lot of people doing a lot worse than what I'm doing. It's not a big deal. God's really merciful. God is really gracious. 
And God has painted a place in such vivid, expressive language to destroy that mindset that says it doesn't matter how you treat your fellow man. If you want them to be cursed and die, like a prophet once did. If I sell lies, white lies, it doesn't matter if I lie, right? No one's really hurt. It doesn't matter if I watch certain things, if no one's really involved. Hell reminds us that there is an immense consequence to the choices we make. Yes, it matters. Every choice matters. That's why we need hell, to remind us. Careful. Careful how you live. But at the same time, we also need heaven. Because heaven helps us to see the good in God's plan. Because we may wonder, well, how is there any good? Sickness and death and disease and fighting and wars, as as Elijah prayed so well today. How, How do we see the goodness of God in a lot of chaos? And we're reminded that whatever is going on today is not the end of the story. And there is a greater end that is to come. And so that's the whole point of Galatians 1, where he says, Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might deliver us out of this present age according to the will of our God and Father, that there is something that is going to make right all that we have experienced that is wrong, and thus heaven helps us to see the hope in hard times. And every bad news, and every diagnosis, and every crisis, and every tragedy, the one thing that is that pillar, that anchor, the people of God is heaven. Have you not felt it before? What would we do if we didn't have heaven? How, How would we see this? How could we possibly handle this if there wasn't heaven? I want you to notice the language of balance and appreciate something with me. From momentary Listen to the language. Light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Have you allowed, through the words of the Holy Spirit, that to impress upon you what is to come? Have you felt... Have you felt the weight of loss, that searing pain, how heavy it is to bury a loved one? Have you felt that weight? Have you felt the weight of a loved one who has been ravaged by illness and sickness and cancers? It doesn't feel light at all. And that is the point. However grave and heavy and serious the pains and sufferings of today may seem, they simply will not compare to the glory that is to come. Let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. Just one glimpse of Him in glory with all the toils of life to pay. Perhaps that's what we need more. However heavy this feels today, remind yourself, God's promised something even greater is yet to come.
I want you just to step it back as we draw this to a close. Just for a moment, I want you to think back over the last month. I'm not anticipating you remembering all those sermons. I probably don't remember all the points in the sermons, at least a general point. When we think of this concept of balance, one of the things I hope we appreciate is just the fact that the Word of God is balanced. God's Word is balanced. It's not all one or one the other. Relating to our study today, as, as God laid out the law to His people going into the promised land, He says that He has set before them, I have called heaven and earth to witness against you today, that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. It's not one or the other. And so Scripture gives warnings because God is trying to keep us from living a certain way and heading a certain path. And so there are warnings and demands and examples that are really negative. But then there's also blessings and promises and kind calls from God and echoes of mercy. It's not all one or the other, which reminds us then if God's word is balanced, then the people of God are to be balanced. Balanced in the way that we think, balanced in the way that we live, and we need to find this far more often because we drift from one extreme to the other. We use this passage to talk about authority often, about what we do and don't do, but I want you to look at this passage in light of balance. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city, which are written in this book. What is he saying? Don't make the Bible say what it doesn't say. Don't ignore what the Bible does say. Take it as it is. As it is. And for all of us, there are some parts of the Word of God. There are some parts about the mind of God that we gravitate closer to more than another. It may be more law because of my upbringing, and I'm very good about wanting to demand justice. I'm very justice-oriented. It may be mercy, and I'm very drawn towards mercy. But whatever it is, I need to find myself imitating the very heart of God who is balanced. Both. A God who is willing to correct his prophet and yet save him. A God who is willing to convict a nation who is so guilty of sin and yet send the prophet for their salvation. And that is perhaps where we get from our study, is that God's motivation for every one of us is this beautiful blend of balance. The kindness and severity of God. I want us to end with a question this morning. And I want you to think about this for a little bit. I'm going to think on it too. And everything that I do, and every choice that I make, and my obedience to God, it's really not, I'm doing this because I want to avoid hell. I just, I, I'm not doing this because I don't want to go to hell. But nor is it, I'm doing this because I want to be rewarded with heaven. And I want to go to heaven. There's another way we need to look at this and ask the question of it. Hell is where God is not, away from the presence of God. Heaven is where God is, is the very presence of God. And so the question I need to be asking myself is this. Where am I in proximity to God? In my thinking, in my attitude, 
in my choices, in my relationships with others, in the trajectory of my life? Where am I in terms of the proximity, the nearness of God? I may make certain choices and avoid others, not because I want to avoid hell or get the riches of heaven, but simply because I'm trying to choose a life to make the choices that draw me the closest I can be to God. Good brethren, there's a great day coming. A glorious day is coming. And everyone who exists, everyone who is hearing me today, we are going to stand before the throne of God and we will meet him face to face. Could be a sad day, a very sad day. If I've allowed my life, my choices to put me in a path away from God. But it can be a wonderful day, a glorious day. For by faith we see our God face to face and are with him forever in eternity. So the invitation is actually just what we're going to sing here in just a moment. <clears throat> the day is coming, and we're going to meet God face to face. What will that day mean for you? If you are not right with your God, if you realize because of the choices of your life that it has put you in a direction far from your God, today, right now, this moment, let's make some changes. Come down here. Let's pray. Let's talk. Let's open the Word of God, and let's realign our life. To walking closer to him. If we can help you in any way, let's do it right now. Let's do it as we stand and as we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.